Chapter Twenty Three of From Bangkok to Bombay, Siam, French Indochina, Burma, Hindustan, by Frank G. Carpenter. This recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Betty B. The Hungry Farmers of Hindustan. I have seen the farmers of every land, but I know of no place where they work so hard and get so little as in India. This is primarily an agricultural country. Three out of every four of its people get their living directly from the soil. Compare this with England, where out of every 100 workers, 58 are engaged in industrial pursuits, 14 in domestic service, 13 in trade, and only eight in agriculture. The wages and profits of these Indian farmers are low beyond American conception. Farm servants and field laborers, of whom there are some 41 millions, are often paid in kind. Where money is used, wages of 12 cents a day are considered high. In the Bombay Presidency, the annual per capita income in the rural districts is $25, but where the soil is shallow and poor, it is only 11, whereas the cost of the barest necessities comes to about 14. The farmers who own their lands are mortgaged up to their eyes, and the money lenders and tax collectors leave them but little peace. The home of the average peasant is not as good as an American cowshed. It is often a windowless mud hut from 10 to 15 feet square with a thatched roof and a floor plastered with cow dung. The furniture usually consists of a rope bed and a few pots and pans. There is seldom more than one room in which the whole family must accommodate itself as it can. Meals are cooked over a fireplace made of three or four bricks set up on end and cow dung is used for fuel. This manure is picked up by the women and girls who follow the cattle. They carry the droppings to their houses and mix them with dirt, patting them into shape with their bare hands and then plastering the cakes on the walls of the huts to dry. In times past, India destroyed her forests recklessly so that now she must use this valuable fertilizer for fuel. Most of the farmers live in villages. There are in India some 750,000 hamlets, with an average of less than 400 inhabitants. In riding across the country, I have seen the villages everywhere dotting the landscape. They are built along mud roads and have none of the surroundings or conveniences of American towns. There are no big schoolhouses or churches, no street lamps, no gutters, and no sidewalks. There is an absence of paint and whitewash. The peasants of India have reduced feeding to an art in doing without. They eat barely enough to keep them alive, their diet being chiefly rice, wheat, beans, millet, and of course grains, with chili peppers and other condiments. They seldom have meat, for many of them was at soon think of chewing their grandparents as of eating beefsteak. For fats, they use a melted butter called ghee. Ordinary butter would not keep in the hot climate of India, where ice is, of course, to be had only in the large centers and where salt is expensive because it is heavily taxed. So the Indians boil their butter in a pot with a little water. The casein, which causes the fat to become rancid, is separated from the butter, which floats on top and can be poured off. If this is carefully done, the fat will keep for a long time without spoiling. Ghee is little used in Burma, but is universally eaten in Hindustan, 
where not much butter or butter substitute is imported because of the hindu's fear of contamination ghee by the way contributes one of the characteristic smells to the cities of india much of the milk consumed comes from buffaloes which give more than twice as much as the average cow the poorer people depend largely on goats for their milk the indian farmer rises at daybreak and takes a bit of cold food to the field where at noon his wife may bring him a hot meal at home the people have no tables but set their bowls on the floor if they are rich they have several large dishes if poor one or two all eat with their fingers and the men always help themselves first it is a well-to-do family that has two full meals a day i am told that not one-third of the natives can afford to eat rice and that the majority live on flour made of coarse grains which they cook up into unleavened cakes called chupatis one of the reasons for the poverty of the hindus is their belief in the sacredness of animals because of this useless half-dead cows buffaloes and other stock as well as the snakes vermin and crop destroying birds and insects are a constant drain and menace the man who would sell his crippled ox to the butcher would incur a lifelong reproach from his neighbors and be heavily fined by his caste the flea-borne pestilence bubonic plague carries off about a million people every year poisonous snakes cause the death of something like twenty-five thousand annually sometimes one sees a hindu going along the road with some rats caught in a wire trap after he gets away from his own small plot he will turn them out he must not kill them but it is considered all right for him to let them go onto someone else's land another burden upon the hindu peasant is the heavy expense for funerals and weddings when his daughter is married off she must be given a dowry as well as a banquet neither can he escape the funeral feast on the death of an adult member of his immediate family such demands send him to the money-lender who exacts the pound of flesh without mercy except on the farms of the wealthy and the government experiment stations agricultural machinery is practically never used rice is transplanted by hand in fields oftentimes irrigated after the most primitive fashion the ripened grain is harvested with a hand sickle and threshed out by the feet of oxen the cultivation of five acres gives a man almost more than he can do most of all the indian farmer is at the mercy of the winds in burma the rice crop is assured year in and year out but in the greater part of india food depends on the rains brought by the monsoon that usually begins to blow over india in june the moisture-laden air currents from the bay of bengal and the arabian sea continue to circulate over the country until the middle or end of september and during this period there are more or less general though not continuous rains but there are all kinds of variations from the normal sometimes the rains delay in starting sometimes they break off for a long time in july or august in any part of the country they may cease before the middle of september if any of these things happen millions of acres of crops wither and die and as the farm population lives almost entirely from hand to mouth famine results famines have been the bane of india for centuries the people live on so narrow a margin that they have no reserve vitality and when their food is cut down they drop off like flies 
one famine in bengal caused the death of ten millions and about a century ago eight millions starved in one province during the famine in eighteen ninety six more than one million rations a day were issued by the british government notwithstanding which almost a million people died of disease or starvation four years later there was a famine affecting nearly half a million square miles with a population of some sixty millions there was no fodder the cattle died by thousands and there was a terrible scarcity of water at that time four and a half million people had to be supported by the state while deaths from actual starvation were not numerous cholera and an epidemic of malaria snuffed out a million lives in the famine-stricken area yet when the rains failed over an even greater area in nineteen eighteen not more than six hundred thousand persons needed public assistance this was largely because by that time machinery for combating the effects of drought and famine had been improved irrigation highways and railroads have done much nowadays with improved transportation and organized relief work an indian famine seldom means actual starvation the food can be had but the trouble is that so many of the people are too poor to buy it as a rule instead of giving food in a famine-stricken district the government now starts public works such as road building and irrigation projects to give employment and wages to the people it also buys up grain and sells it at a price that the natives can afford to pay in a country like india irrigation is a vital need the indian irrigation commission after two years investigation reported that between the region with sufficient annual rainfall and that in which no agriculture at all is possible without irrigation there lies a tract of nearly a million square miles which unirrigated cannot be considered secure against the uncertainty of the seasons and the scourge of famine irrigation is accomplished in various ways much land is watered by the cultivators themselves without the aid of the government almost every known system of raising water from wells is in use from the primitive method of lifting it by hand to power pumping the total irrigated area in british india is now a little more than twenty seven million acres about two-thirds of which is served by irrigation canals and other works installed by the government many large irrigation projects are in prospect or now under way from my talks with the agents of both the imperial and the provincial departments of agriculture i am convinced that the british are alive to the needs of the farmers of india and are doing a great deal to improve their condition for instance when i talked with the secretary of the agriculture department of india he told me that every province has now its agricultural schools each is making a study of the conditions peculiar to its region and doing what it can to improve them our modern agricultural movement said the secretary was practically begun by one of your millionaires henry phipps of pittsburgh when he came out to calcutta he spent some time with his friend lord curzon then viceroy of india during his visit he became interested in the condition of the farmers of this country he believed that the famines could be prevented to a great extent by the improvement of our farming methods and he gave one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to start an agricultural school and farm at pusa in bengal experts were hired 
and an up-to-date agricultural college was established additions have been made to the fund originally given by mr phipps until we have expended something like seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars in building up the institution today it ranks with the best of its kind in the world one of the biggest things we are doing is the work for the betterment of the quality and yield of our cotton crop continued this official our farmers find that in the long run cotton is more profitable than any other crop india stands second only to the united states among the world's cotton producing countries but our product is shorter in staple poorer in spinning value and smaller in yield per acre than is yours we are trying to improve the staple by seed selection and by cross fertilization but it is difficult to persuade the farmers to make such experiments still last year we distributed sufficient improved cotton seed for planting three hundred thousand acres we have acclimated your long staple sea island cotton and give out thousands of pounds of the seed every year at present we have in all india something like thirty six thousand square miles under cotton in a recent year the yield was ninety eight pounds per acre but this is not impressive compared to your average in the united states which i understand sometimes goes beyond two hundred pounds to the acre how about your competition with us i inquired that has already reached considerable proportions and i think is likely to grow was the answer for instance we have doubled our yield in the past thirty years whereas in the united states i believe there is now a distinct tendency toward a decreased cotton crop the greater part of the several million bales we export goes to japan she makes our cheap cotton into cloth and ships it back to us at a price that is driving from our markets the product of the british mills which is made from american cotton the boll weevil and the high costs of land labor and fertilizer in the united states have helped to raise the price of american raw cotton until goods manufactured of it are beyond the reach of the lower classes of india and china so altogether i should say that within the next ten years our cotton will be a serious competitor of yours tell me something about your wheat crop i said as you know rice is our chief cereal crop said the secretary wheat comes next since canada ran ahead of us india takes fourth place among the world's wheat producers ordinarily we have a surplus for export but in bad years we must import wheat we sow in october and harvest in march and april so that our crop has the advantage of appearing on the european market in the spring when wheat from other sources is scarce our agricultural stations are now doing all they can to introduce modern machinery they encourage the use of iron plows and of reapers and threshers they show the wheat farmers how to use such machines and stage competitive demonstrations on the part of the dealers in the different makes but it is difficult to get the people to take up any new methods or try out new seeds for one thing their holdings are generally too small to make the use of much machinery profitable even if they could afford to buy it another crop we are trying to stimulate is sugarcane continued the secretary you know that it is thought that this plant is native to india where it has been grown for hundreds of years yet the methods of cultivation and juice extraction are so poor that india does not now produce enough for her needs indeed sugar is the only agricultural product in which the balance of trade is decidedly against the country 
the growers usually raise what they need for home consumption press out the juice in the crudest kind of mills and boil it down without removing the molasses there is a strong prejudice among the orthodox hindus against sugar refined by means of animal charcoal nevertheless the sugar bureau at pusa is steadily expanding its activities and has already accomplished something in the way of bettering sugar culture and manufacture what are you going to do to improve your livestock i ask we have breeding establishments connected with some of the agricultural stations and there is a breeding farm at pusa many of the provincial governments hold agricultural shows where prizes are given for the best bred animals and there are dairy farms under government supervision are the sacred cows of india good milkers not as a rule was the reply one of our best milk breeds comes from the gear hills and others are from sindh where the mohammedans drive them in herds from one jungle pasture to another the punjab has good dairy cows but those of bengal are poor our conversation next turned to the efforts of china to abolish the use of opium and the agreement between the chinese and the british government to shut off the supply from india i asked how this had affected poppy growing here when china ceased buying our opium he answered many of our farmers stopped planting the poppies the agreement with china has meant the sacrifice of a revenue of twenty million dollars a year the amount of land now under poppy cultivation in british india is comparatively small except in the native states the government decides what fields may be planted in poppies and restricts these to certain sections of bengal and the united provinces the cultivators receive advances to enable them to prepare the ground and raise the plants but are bound to sell their whole crop to the government is much opium consumed in india i asked in proportion to the population no was the answer and consumption is decreasing people generally appear to misunderstand the position of the government in this matter of the control of the opium traffic the main facts are these for many centuries before the british came the people of india had had the habit of taking small quantities of opium furthermore opium has for hundreds of years been used on ceremonial occasions being passed around as a refreshment somewhat as we offer cigarettes to guests in my opinion the government would have made a mistake to lay violent hands on a custom so long established opium addicts are rare in this country and the drug evidently does not produce the same effect upon indians as upon the chinese or else the former exercise far more self-control in its use the government's policy is to control the trade in such a way as to ensure effective regulation and keep the business from falling into the wrong hands owing to its measures the prices have steadily risen and consumption and production have steadily declined end of chapter twenty three